One last time, I add more word of greeting to those you've already heard in the one whom Haggai in the authorized version calls the desire of the nations, Jesus Christ the Lord. I'm told that's not the best Hebrew, but it's true, not the best translation from the Hebrew. He is the desire of the nations. How many of you were not here this morning? Raise your hand. A few. We spent time in... We actually straddled two chapters, Genesis 40 and Acts 16. We're going to give a, a brief parting shot to Genesis 40 and try to tie something together. Obviously, it was a big block of material to try to cover in one service. And then, um, then we'll land and, and spend most of our time in Acts 16. Now, in missions conferences, normally there are lots of challenges. There are, many churches have faith promise opportunities and commitments. Uh, you may do that here sometime because I've been gone for 15 years, but it's never been done at any time I've been in Memphis. But normally we, we challenge you to go somewhere uh, that you weren't going to go or to give something that you weren't going to give. Uh, I have a challenge for you. you know, I, I would not only ask you, I would challenge you, I would not only challenge you, I would beg you. I would beg you with tears. Not to go anywhere that you weren't already going to go. Not to give anything that you weren't already going to give. Does that make you feel a little better? What I would ask you, what I would challenge you, what I, what I would beg you is let God decide. You take that decision out of your hands and you let God decide. Now, there are two billion professing Christians in the world. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, who accept a call, accepted the call to become the second pastor of this church in 1941, but backed away when, uh, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, was fond of saying, I'm tired of hearing people say, I've met some saved Catholics. He said, I'll go you one better. I've met some saved Protestants. So I don't, mean, I don't mean to disparage Catholics or the Orthodox, but I would guess that of that two billion, probably a little bit less than a half have what we would call a biblical conversion. And, and, and obviously some Protestants aren't converted and some Catholics and Orthodox are. We admit that. So let's say a little less than a billion. Now, there are about 200,000 Bible-believing missionaries in the world, which means that there are more people selling Avon in North America than there are Bible-believing missionaries in the world. But let's take that as a number that is God's will because it's what happens. So I think that's about 2%. So if we had a 1,000 people here this weekend, and I think we probably did, but, but we'll take a thousand as a round number, maybe it's a little more, maybe it's a little, little less. That would mean that there would be, if God is still working on average, there would be about 20 called people. So there are 98% of you that I don't want to bother and I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. But I want to say something to the 2%, and I don't know who you are, but I know you're wrestling. 
and you're probably resisting. And what I want to say to you is let it go. Let it go. Stop hugging the shore. Launch out. Take a risk. Now, many years ago, 1972, I took a few tennis lessons. And uh, I think my instructor quickly chose another career. But I can, I can remember one thing that he said. I can only remember one thing that he said. He said, try not to miss the point. But if you miss the point, don't hit it into the net. Hit it over the back line. If you're going to miss the point, don't lose the point by hitting it into the net. Lose the point by hitting over the back line. I think you get it, don't you? I don't want you to lose the point. I don't want you to rush out somewhere where you don't need to go. I don't want you to spend some mission giving money that ought to go to somebody else because you're really uh, involving yourself in an act of bravado or you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. But I will say this one more time. If you lose the point, don't lose the point by hitting it into the net. If you don't do exactly what Jesus wants you to do, do too much, don't do too little. When we have colleagues or people working with us, I'd much rather have somebody I have to hose down than somebody I have to fire up. And those of you who run businesses or manage people, you know what I'm talking about. Now, I'm not going to read the text, and I apologize to the few of you who weren't here this morning, but we, we, we looked at a large chunk of material this morning. They're two very familiar stories, and we connected the stories by saying that Joseph in prison was a kind of birth of missions. He was in a foreign country, bearing a witness for God, and that Acts 16 with Paul and Silas in prison is a kind of zenith of missions. It's a kind of high tide of missions. And we said that the story of missions was the story of redemption. Now, redemption is when you set somebody free. There's a, a strange understanding of this even among pagan people. Some of you are old enough to remember a, a folk singer called Donovan. He got popular with a song called Catch the Wind in about 1964 to 1965. His high water mark was in August 1966. Um, he had a song, I have no idea what it meant. It was called Sunshine Superman. And then he kind of just disappeared. But there was, a, there was a song that he sang where he said, um, was, the name of the song was Yellow is the Color of My True Love's Hair. And there was a, a line in that song, a verse in that song. And he said, um, freedom is a word I rarely use without thinking. Freedom is a word I rarely use without thinking about the time when I was bought. Now that, that line had no connection to the rest of the song, but that's what redemption is. Um, we are set free because somebody bought us. 
Now, what we didn't talk about this morning was the fact that that payment, you, that payment biblically involves a ransom, and it involves a hostage. I've offended some people because I'm not as enthusiastic about our president as some Christians are, many Christians are. But I want to say this. To my knowledge, the greatest thing ever done by an American president, to my knowledge, was President Trump's personal involvement in the freeing of Andrew Brunson. I can't think of any head of state who would have ever been so personally involved in keeping the hammer down and the pressure on to get that missionary out of that Turkish prison. And it was magnificent. And the, the point I want to make right now is, do you know in those two years or so, do you know how many times Andrew Brunson was interrogated? Does anybody know? Zero. Now, if they had really thought he was a spy, how many times do you think he would have been interrogated? He would have been interrogated a hundred times the first month he was there. They would have used all kinds of techniques on him to get information on him. They would have known where he got his money. They would know what, who his network were, uh, was, who he was reporting to, who was reporting to him. They would have been merciless. They never interviewed him. They never interrogated him because they knew he wasn't a spy. He wasn't a spy. He was a hostage. And we were set free because of a hostage who volunteered. Now, here's where the types and the patterns devolve on one person. And usually you have one pattern that only speaks to one category. Usually you've got a, a king and and the king is never the priest, and, and the priest is never the king, and, and the priest and the king are, are rarely the, the prophet. But finally, when all the types and patterns come crashing into each other, you see that the, there's one figure who fits. And when we read the Old Testament, I don't like puzzles. I don't like board games. Jane does. She's the ideal grandmother and playmate, and I'm just... Not. And, and, uh, but you know, people who are really good at puzzles, they can put those puzzles together without a pattern. And even the real pros without the little uh, spaces cut out so that you know, you know how to get them in the space and how they fit. The real pros can do it with, without, any, without any little uh, lines in the board and without a pattern to look at. Well, when you read the Old Testament, it's like that until you get to the New Testament. You've got all these pictures, all these patterns, all these types. You've got the priest. You've got the sacrifice. You've got the temple. You've got the ark. You've got personalities like Abel, like Joseph, like David, who comes first as a shepherd and then as a king. And they're just, just all those fragments are out there, but we're not looking at the picture of how they're supposed to fit together until a child is born in Bethlehem. And when that child is a young man, 
walks down the hill toward the Jordan River. John the Baptist says, there he is. There's the picture of that all the puzzle pieces were trying to show us. And when you put all the puzzle pieces together, there he is. All the puzzles fit him. And so, the hostage also pays the ransom. And even though the ransom is paid, the hostage isn't freed. The hostage dies. And he volunteered knowing that he wouldn't be freed, knowing that he would die. Now, I'm not even going to use the word ministry. I'm going to use the word impact. If you want to have a ministry impact, and I hope you do, even if it's only on your kids or grandkids, you can't have a ministry, you can't have, excuse me, you can't have a redemptive impact. If you want to have a redemptive impact, you can't have a redemptive impact unless you're willing to suffer. You can choose not to suffer if you want not to suffer, and few of us do. But if you're going to have a redemptive impact, you have to be willing to suffer. Now, Joseph suffered, but he didn't volunteer. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus was born in the, into the tribe of Judah? And have you ever asked yourself the question, why wasn't the tribe of Joseph, who really, he didn't get a full tribe, he got two half-tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons. Well, we really, theologically, we don't need to answer that question, or we can answer it theologically simply, simply by saying it was, the, it was an election of grace. The answer doesn't lie in Joseph. The answer doesn't lie in Judah. The answer lies in God. Why were you elect? Why did you come to Jesus? Why did the Ayatollah Khomeini not come to Jesus? Why did Fidel Castro not come to Jesus? Why did Joseph Stalin not come to Jesus? But you did. It wasn't because God foresaw merit and desert and goodness in you. It was an election of grace. It's attributable to the sovereignty of God only, not your virtue, not my virtue. That's all the answer we need when we say, why did Jesus, why was he born? Why, were, why was David born and his descendant, the Davidic king, Jesus of Nazareth, born in the tribe of Judah and not Joseph? All we need to say is it's an, elect, an election of grace. But if we are made to guess, if we say, okay, well, what else? Is there any other possibility? Yeah, there is. Actually, there is. I'm not saying this is the reason, because I think the reason is sheer grace. But remember, Joseph didn't volunteer. Now, you'll read a lot of Bible, you'll hear a lot of Bible teachers, you'll read it in a lot of books that say Joseph was wrong, he was wrong because he boasted about the dreams, he was wrong because he he lied to his brothers and he deceived them and he made them sweat bullets. Uh, Joseph didn't sin. No, he didn't. Uh, if you get the ball and you're dribbling hard and you, you got one person between you and the basket, you go hard at the right side of the basket and you 
bounce that basketball behind your back and you flip it up from the left side and it goes in the basket, do you owe the defender an apology? Did you sin? You made him think you were going to go up with your right hand, but you went up with your left hand. Did you sin? You deceived him. In June 1944, the greatest assembly of fighting men in the history of the world gathered on the coast of England. They did everything they can, they could, to make Germany believe that they were going to cross the channel at the shortest point, namely at Calais. They didn't want them to think Normandy. Why should they think Normandy? It wasn't the shortest point, and there were high cliffs there. But they didn't go to Calais. They went to Normandy. Did they owe Hitler an apology? They deceived him. Did they sin against him? Should they have asked forgiveness? Of course not. Did you know that sport is a metaphor for war? Joseph's brothers declared war on him. And he didn't know for sure they were telling him the truth. As a matter of fact, one of the funniest verses in the Bible is found when they say to Joseph, we are honest men. Because they weren't. And what he did was one of the wisest most effective sanctification clinics in history because he brought Judah to the point in Genesis 44, 18, when Judah approaches Joseph and he says, look, you got, you got to let Benjamin go back. You've got to let Benjamin go back because it will kill my father if he doesn't see that boy. Take me hostage. Let me be your slave forever. But let that boy go home. Now, 20 years earlier, he was willing for the other son of Rachel to stay in Jesus, in, in uh, Egypt as a slave while he went home. He was willing to break his daddy's heart 20 years earlier. What had changed? He had been redeemed. And because he had been redeemed, he became a redeemer. He wanted to free Benjamin so that he could suffer. And you read Genesis 37 and, and, and 39 and 40 and 41, Joseph is so high and lofty. You read Genesis 38, Judah is so low and dirty. He's unbelievably low and, and unbelievably dirty. But by the time you get to Genesis 44, Joseph didn't volunteer to be a hostage. He was forced into it. Judah volunteered. And in that sense, he was standing on a loftier plane than even Joseph, even though Joseph was the one who discipled him. Joseph was the one who made, made it happen. And it is at that point that Joseph can't control himself anymore because he sees that his plan has worked. 
he sees that his brothers have changed. And he begins to shake with emotion. And he makes everybody leave. And the Egyptians, after they left, could hear him crying and wailing from the other room. And then he uttered the most dramatic words in the Old Testament. I am Joseph. Is my father really alive? That's a foreshadowing too. That's a type also. That's a pattern of something that's going to happen one day. Zechariah tells us in chapter 14 that Jesus is going to put his foot down on the top of the Mount of Olives. Can't prove it. Scripture doesn't say it. I believe he will put us down on the footprint that he alighted from because he ascended from the Mount of Olives. The mountain will cleave in two from the, uh, in a northerly and a southerly direction. Jesus will head west. He will cross the Valley of Jehoshaphat. He will go over the brook Kidron, and he will go up through the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he'll go in the Golden Gate, the East Gate, the gate that has been sealed for over 500 years, the gate he entered on the day of the triumphal entry on, on Palm Sunday. And to an astonished multitude, he will say, I am Jesus, whom you crucified. My father is alive. I don't know. I would expect him to exhibit the scars. That will be a great day in the morning, won't it? Now, I wonder why, with all the advantages we have over Joseph and over Judah, why are our lives so less consequential? Do you know one of the greatest advantages we have over them? Do you know one of the greatest advantages we have over Paul and Silas? We know their story. We know how it ended. They didn't know how it was going to end. We know how it ended. It ended in obedience. It ended in vindication. It ended in glory. Now, they died. Joseph died in Egypt, and Paul died in Rome. But their stories ought to fortify us and change us. This place has a legacy. It's a blessed legacy. It's a glorious legacy. Our first pastor left a prestigious first church position. He left his manse. He left his pension. He left the esteem of his denominational leaders. And he went out with a little band of fundamentalists, people who believe the Bible. And he took the stigma of a church meeting in rented quarters. He was succeeded by a man who left Princeton Seminary and went out to Korea and stayed there 25 years. That man's daughter became a physician, and instead of pursuing a physician's salary, she became a trailblazing medical missionary, first in Bethlehem and then in Jordan. That man's successor, whose son is in the room, had a flaming heart for missions. Two of his children became missionaries. 
and his grandson died on the bishop field. He gave his life. And his father's in the room. Men of whom the world were not worthy. Now, we haven't even gotten to Acts 16. Let me just spend a few minutes there and we'll be done, okay? Um, I wanted to say something to you about how do you find out what God's will is. You know, Paul and Silas didn't know at first. The plan for the second missionary journey, first missionary journeys, Acts 13 and 14, they go back to Jerusalem so they can meet with the church leaders and figure out what the gospel really is. Once they did that, Paul and Barnabas split up. We talked about that yesterday morning. And so their plan is to retrace the steps of the first journey. Paul actually goes back to the place where he was stoned. In chapter 14, he goes back to Lystra. That ministry looked like total abject failure. They stoned him. I think this is like the third time he goes back. And there he finds somebody that either got converted under his disastrous ministry or decided he wanted to be a missionary too because of the influence of this man whom they stoned. And the person he picked up was named Timothy. Not bad for a disastrous ministry. So then the three of them set out. And as they set out, um, they begin knocking on the doors, and the doors will not yield. Acts 16, 6, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's the Roman province of Asia Minor. Minor present-day Turkey. After they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. So they've tried the Phrygian and Galatian region. They've tried all of Asia Minor. They've tried Mycenae. They've tried Bithynia. Troas is not the place, that's the port. That's not the place they're allowed to stay either. Have you ever tried to do something that didn't work? Do you ever have a have you ever had a bad experience in ministry? Have you ever had an experience that's so bad in ministry that you quit? You know, some of the most demoralized people in the world are church planners of churches that didn't take off. Once they're able to come back to church, they usually come and sit on the back row leave before the service is over. They get there after the service starts. They're defeated, they're demoralized because they laid it all on the line for Jesus and it just didn't seem to work. These people went to Galatia and Phrygia, it didn't work. They extended their ministry attempts through Asia Minor, it didn't work. They came to Bithynia, it didn't work. They came to Mycenae, it didn't work. They came to Trust, and it didn't work. You know, if at first you don't succeed, skydiving is not for you. But it's okay in ministry. It's okay to fail in ministry. 
Sometimes we have to fail over and over to get the flesh out of it, to be taken down a peg or two, to get our pride, our miserable, stinking pride out of the way and realize God doesn't need us. He may want us, but he doesn't need us. It's okay to fail. It's okay to blow it. It's, it's okay to call meetings and nobody comes or to make attempts and, and they don't work and to share your faith and nobody prays. That's okay. The great thing is to keep doing what the Lord calls you to do and let him decide what a failure is. Lystra was a failure. They thought. But when they went back there, Timothy came forward. Who was Timothy? Well, Paul told the Philippians that Timothy was the best man Paul had. So at Troas, they get the vision. The vision came in Acts 16.9 to Paul, a vision of a man in the night, a man of Macedonia, standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us, just like I want to say to the 2%. Go wherever you're supposed to go and help them. 2% would only be 10 people, 10 out of 1,000. Let's, let's cut it in half. Let's say five people. Just five people. Go wherever the Lord is calling you and help them. Help the people who need help. You're not going to do any good in a place God doesn't want you to be, no matter how indispensable you think you are. So they agree that God's calling all of us, so they get on board, and something very important happens in verse 10. Did you notice it? When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. We. We. The writer joins the apostolic band. This is his... Writing is his third career. His first career was being a doctor. His second career was being a missionary. His third career was being a writer. This is where it starts right here, his second career. Uh, have you joined the apostolic band? Do you not have enough training? How much training did the woman of Samaria have? The woman at the well. Uh, do you not have any credibility? How much credibility does she have? She was a harlot. She went down the hill and started witnessing, and the whole village came to Christ. She didn't use excuses. What's your excuse? You don't have to move out of Shelby County to join the apostolic band. Um, there is one thing you do have to do, though. They cross the Aegean from east to west. They land in northern Greece in a, a place called Philippi, the leading city in the district of Macedonia. On the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to the riverside where they were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. That's what you got to do. You got to go to the prayer meeting. You got to pray. You got to be serious about prayer. If you can't get yourself to the point where you're serious about prayer, for God's sake, I say that again reverently, worshipfully, not profanely, for God's sake, don't go. 
If you can't be serious about prayer, you're not serious, period. Here's the interesting thing, two interesting things. Number one, they find a woman there named Lydia. Guess where she was from? She was from Asia Minor. She was from the place the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go. They weren't allowed to go to Asia Minor. They went to Europe to lead somebody to Christ from Asia Minor. David was talking about this today, that the fifth, fourth largest country in the world is expatria. Thank you, David. New thought for me and a new stat for me. That is people who are living in places that they didn't grow up. She was a member, a citizen of expatria. She was from the place Jesus wouldn't let them go, and she was the first person to be saved. The first person to be saved was not a European in Europe. The first person to be saved in Europe was an Asian. That's the first interesting thing. The, the other interesting thing, after she's baptized, after she um, acts, begs them to stay, prevails upon them to, to receive her hospitality, look at verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, they didn't go to the place of prayer once. They didn't go to the place of prayer to cherry pick and cannibalize the group there to try to get the group at the prayer meeting into their group. No, they kept going to the prayer meeting over and over and over and over. You know why there's a church in Europe? Because a few women were willing to pray. Don't ever estimate the potential power to be unleashed if a, few, if a few women are willing to pray. That's why there's a church in Europe. That's why there's something called the West. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to run out of time. I'm just going to say this pretty quickly. It's a pretty big concept. I was witnessing on the street in Budapest maybe 10 years ago. I don't want to leave you the impression that I'm over there doing that every day because I'm not. A lot of days I don't do anything. So it wasn't a typical day. But I was on the street that day, and um, I approached an extremely handsome young man, beautifully dressed. The only way I knew he was a Muslim is because of what he had on his head. And, you know, some people start by saying, have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? Some people start by saying, may I ask you a question? Some people start by saying, if you were to die tonight, you know for sure that you'd go to heaven. I start by saying, can you speak English? And he could. He was from South Africa. And very soon we got into it. And I mean, we really got into it. And he was an extremely formidable debater. And he was toe-to-toe -to -toe with me. I'd punch, he'd counterpunch. I'd, I'd share a point that I thought was unanswerable. He would answer it. He was sharp. He was great. He was a credit to his false religion. Finally, I said, well, I, got, I, I want to ask you something. He said, ask away. I said, tell me why that 90% of your people who live in a country where Sharia is honored and practiced, if they could bring their families with them, they would all jump at the chance of immigrating to a country with a Judeo-Christian heritage. He was so honest. He had such integrity. He hung his head. And he said, 
I don't have a good answer for that question. I do. We heard from Janie Till a moment ago. Why, when they scramble from those countries, why don't they go to another Muslim country? Why don't they go to Saudi Arabia? That's where Mecca is. Well, one reason is because the Saudis won't let them in. Which brings us to another question. Why won't the citadels of Islam receive their own people? Why do they want to go to the West? What is the West? What's attractive about the West? Why is the West great? Well, the atheists will tell you the West is great because of the legacy of Greek and Rome. That's a lie. Greek and Rome gave us temple prostitution. Greece and Rome gave us slavery. Greece and Rome gave us infanticide. Christianity gave us people who freed the slaves, people who rescued the, the little girls earmarked for prostitution. Christianity gave us the people who do everything they can to stop not only infanticide, but abortion. And let me tell you, infanticide is where it's going, people. And has it ever occurred to you, and, this, and I love to ask leftists this, why don't we just say, go ahead and kill your babies because your babies are not going to vote for our candidates? Go ahead and exterminate your next generation of voters. Go ahead and kill the people who are going to grow up to be like you instead of the people who are going to grow up to be like us. Go ahead. Commit genocide on your own spiritual kinfolk. That's going to help us. Why don't we say that? Um, we don't say that because Jesus said to the arresting party, take me and let them go. We don't say that because Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We say, your babies are precious, even though they may vote, they may vote and take our our freedoms away. We'll take that risk if you'll just save your babies. That's the West. And the West is great because of Jesus. And the West gets started in Acts 16. The apostles are trying to go east, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Paul had a vision of a man who said, come to the West. Come to the West and birth the West, so that people who are persecuted and people who are desperate will have a place to flee, will have a city of refuge because they just want to be free. That's what redemption is. It's making people Now, what do you do? I haven't left myself much time to talk about finding the will of God, have I? I'll say it real fast. 
Sometimes we know the will of God because of something supernatural. Um, Bob Till just mentioned that. Some people are still having visions. Most of them are Muslims. Some of our best leaders are saying it's not real, it's bogus. Well, you know, um, these people who are having these bogus conversions are not able to go back to their father's house because they're worshiping Jesus. That doesn't sound bogus to me. That sounds somebody like somebody who's sacrificed a lot more for Jesus than I have. That sounds pretty authentic to me. Probably, and why is Jesus appearing to them in dreams and visions? Well, probably because missionaries like me are afraid to go there. So the Lord just says, okay, I'll go. I'll do it myself. You don't want to do it? I'll do it. Sad, isn't it? That's what's happening, though. Most of the time, God leads his people through his word. That's a little dangerous because you can prove anything with the Bible. The devil tried to prove stuff from the Bible. The Mormons try to prove stuff from the Bible. The Jehovah's Witnesses try to prove stuff from the Bible. The Muslims try to prove stuff from the Bible. So it's a little dangerous. But if God can't lead his people by his word, how on earth is he going to lead them? Sometimes the Lord gives you a verse. Like a verse about a scorched place. And sometimes you can't really defend why that verse means you're supposed to go to this place and not that place, or why you're supposed to do this or supposed to do that. You just know that's your verse. You just know the Lord is speaking to you in that verse. And that's okay, Christian. Stand on it. There's some things that we can't explain, but we also can't deny. I made huge decisions to leave countries and enter other countries because of passages of Scripture that I would not care to defend in front of a seminary professor how I got that out of that verse. But I did, and I went. Sometimes it's a direction you start to go in. You start taking steps, and we got to step somewhere, don't we? Let's just don't step backwards. David Livingston, one of the greatest missionaries of the 19th century, said, I'll go anywhere as long as it's forward. The church of Jesus Christ is like a bicycle. It goes forward or it falls over. Take a step somewhere. Step into the light that you might show others the light. In his light, we see light and we show light. And when you take that step, if you get more light, more confirmation, if you feel closer to Jesus, you're going in the right direction. The verse for that is Proverbs 4.18. The path of the just is like the first gleam of dawn. At first, it's barely light, but as the morning wears on, you get more and more light. You're getting more light, keep going in that direction. The best thing you can do is to draw near to the Lord. When you draw near to the Lord, he will show you what to do. That's Psalm 32. Psalm 32 says, I will guide you with the guiding of my eye. You're close enough to the Lord to see where his eyes are pointing. And he says, don't be like the donkey or the mule who require a bit and bridle. In other words, when you're dealing with God's will for your future, look at me. Don't make God do this. Don't make him put the bit in and go jerk on the bridle to get your attention. One kind of dog requires a leash. Another kind of dog requires a voice. Which kind of dog are you for God? 
when you hear his voice, don't make him get out the bit and bridle. Oswald Chambers said that Isaiah was so close to the Lord that he could hear the Lord, that he could hear the Lord talking to himself. And he heard the Lord say, well, whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, well, here I am. You could send me. Sometimes it's compulsion. You do it because you can't not do it. I've experienced that in my life twice. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, hey, don't give me credit for doing what I'm doing. I can't help it. I can't help it. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. This is what Luther meant at the Diet of Worm when he said, here I stand. I can't do anything else. I have to do this. John Knox said, give me Scotland or I die. That's one way God calls. Are you listening, you five? Are you listening, you four? Are you listening, you eight? Let me tell you something. If you're not a part of the one or two percent, there's plenty for you to do. It may mean mending a broken relationship. You initiate. The more godly in a broken relationship always initiates first, Who's godly? Who's going to take the first step? Who's going to say, please forgive me? Who's going to say, I was wrong? You know what happens after redemption? Reconciliation. With some of you, it just means an evangelistic conversation. You don't have to go to Turkey with Ross Campbell. You don't have to go back to Nepal with our fantastic guest who speaks better English than I do and can't stop smiling. I'll memorize his name in an hour. You don't have to go to Africa with Lewis and Ann unless God calls you there. But you've known a non-Christian for a long time, haven't you? And you're not sure of the gospel, have you? And you don't know he's not going to die before you do share the gospel, do you? Do you? And you don't know that you're not going to die before you share the gospel with him, do you? So you don't have to leave your zip code. You don't have to buy a plane ticket. You know what? A plane ticket never made a missionary. You start being a missionary where you are. The gospel is a treasure. And I refuse to believe that 99% of the people who came back here on Sunday night are not familiar enough with that treasure to share it with somebody else. This church has a legacy. God help it to continue. Amen.